Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, and here with me today is Diana Cohen, the founder and CEO of Crown Affair. Hi, Diana. Hi, Priya. Thank you for having me today. Well, first off, Diana, a major congratulations on your wedding. You had the most gorgeous wedding that was so recent, and you also moved to Florida, didn't you? All of the things. It's been a big year. Uh, Yeah, the wedding was a long time coming. It was almost two years after the original date, and... um, been love loving Florida life so far. How um, has that been just managing your business? Because before it was here, obviously, based in New York. Yeah. So I've always secretly been like a remote work person. Um, I was an early employee at a lot of consumer startups, but my last kind of full-time role, which then turned into consulting freelance gigs, I very much structured my life where I was working from home most days. And I have always loved that. So you know, with Crown Affair launching only six weeks before the pandemic, we've really been a team that has been able to work efficiently, primarily remotely, and then meeting when we need to. So it hasn't been too different is is the weird answer with the, with the business so far. So Diana, go back a little bit. So, you know, I think you have been involved in so many of these amazing startups and the early phases, whether it be Glossier or other D2C companies. So what was your background, um, you know, coming out of college and, and in beauty? Yeah, so I actually started my last internship, which turned into a role, was at Into the Gloss, way pre-Glossier. So even though it was definitely a twinkle in Emily and the company's eye, I started out in the beauty space, um, supporting on editorial production, which really meant doing anything, whether that was transcribing an interview, setting up affiliate links, uploading photos that Emily would send in a folder to Pinterest. It was just a very different time in the internet, but I was very excited about it. Uh, This was 2012. So at the same time, a lot of my peers were maybe going to Condé Nast, working at more traditional publications, which I always aspired to do. And kudos to everyone who has done that. Um, But I just always love the internet and kind of how people talk about products, how they share information. We've made an exponential leap since 2012. I don't even think Instagram was like, I mean, it was around, but it was obviously not in the form that it exists today or TikTok definitely didn't exist back then. So um, it was, that's really how I got started. And I was very lucky to meet a woman early in my career named Era Katz, who is now the co-founder of Seed, um, which is a probiotic company now, but she was my first boss at Spring and really introduced me to the entire consumer e-commerce world back then. I know that there was this like magical spreadsheet that was going around, uh, Diana, when you were kind of concepting Crown Affair. And, you know, I think the hair care category has been slower in terms of innovation when you think about skincare, when you think about makeup. So how did you kind of land there and what was the spreadsheet? Yes. So I always say, first of all, if you're thinking about launching a brand into the world, one of the most powerful things that you can do is build a community. It doesn't matter if you have a product yet. I think like it's way more appealing, actually, if you have an entire community who's excited about what you're potentially putting into the world. Um, so this, <laughs> these have been conversations that have happened over the last decade, if not more. You know, I was always the person, I remember when I was a kid actually growing up in Florida, like all the kids, it was like a pool party and all the kids would throw on their bathing suits and I would like tiptoe to the bathroom, like dunk my head in the sink so it would get fresh water instead of have like chlorine water on it. And I've just always had these little mindful habits around taking care of my hair that I recognized and realized really transformed the health of my hair over time. You know, hair is sometimes an afterthought, especially when it comes to 
the in relationship to skincare color cosmetics. Like people are like, oh, I have a whole routine with my skincare. This is everything I use, but I don't even know where to start with my hair. And a huge part of that is like the category's really been driven by styling and professional and selling perfection and good hair days and all this stuff that I truthfully never really connected with. My approach to hair care has always been about like the no makeup makeup version, right? And everything else in the category was giving me full Kardashian contour or the equivalent of it for my hair. So it started by me just wanting to put together a list of things that I did to my hair and sharing it with my girlfriends. And, you know, it had everything from the very expensive Mason Pearson brush that I would use to a few different hair oils, depending on the season or maybe where you lived, even something like a silk pillowcase or the towel, that is where the towel came from. But with every recommendation I gave, there was always a little bit of a caveat, whether that was the brush was $200, which isn't a super accessible price point for everybody, or the towel was, you know, one you could get on Amazon or from somewhere, but like there were a bunch of things that I didn't like from the length to how it washed, to how it looked, how, you know, just everything about it and all the things I wanted to change. So it started very much as like an organic conversation and what I was recommending. And I started working on product nights and weekends from there. And you sent this to like just your friends, you know, just your friends who were asking you what you were using, right? Yeah. It's actually my friend Lexi who has worked at IBM forever. Her mom's a dermatologist and we were having coffee one day and I was just telling her about my hair. Literally the word version, actually talking to her what the Google sheet was. And she was like, please send this to me. And I sent it to her in an email first. And then a few people, she sent it to a few friends. Another friend had was recently losing hair from postpartum hair loss. So it just became this organic living document because it was just easier for it to live that way than like forwarding email chains, you know? Do you remember how many people you sent it to at that time? I originally sent it to like six people. Um, and it just went way beyond that network. <laughs> you mentioned a second ago something about these hair goals, good hair day, you know, the Kardashian effect on hair. And I think, you know, we're kind of still in that moment. You know, what's going on on TikTok right now is very reminiscent of like those Pantene commercials you used to see in the 90s, like perfect, straight, glossy, you know. And I'm wondering, you know, how did you kind of explain to people what this no makeup, makeup hair idea was going to be without product or when you were pitching investors or when you were kind of getting off the ground? So in my personal life, I am a very, it's taken me a long time to get here, but I'm very consistent with my rituals. So I'm someone who wakes up every morning and journals three pages, stream of consciousness writing. I have to stretch every day. Like if I don't foam roll or stretch, like I'm not a huge activity workout person, but for me, just like moving my body and feeling connected to it is super important. Meditation is something that I've practiced for years now too. And I'm so not perfect for anyone listening who's like, I can't meditate for more than three days in a row. Like I feel you. I think the beauty of this is every ritual that I have isn't about perfection. It is about the consistency. And when you do something for years, you really do see the change over time. So when I was having these early conversations about hair care really as a ritual and approaching it from a place of care, like in the way that you'd think about, right, there's a reason that like consistency of what you put in your body and caring for it. And you're going to have days where you're like indulging and have moments like that. But if you're consistent versus trying to do like something that will fix you, fix you immediately, like a crash diet or something that's going to repair your hair overnight, like that to me never was super appealing um, and really approaching it from a place of care. So the whole concept around taking your time is really where the brand started before we had product. 
um, and connecting with women who felt similarly. You know, they weren't the girls spending two hours on YouTube doing hair tutorials, you know, like I'm not like that. I, I even say now, like our customer and community is the woman who is super dynamic and she does care about her hair and her skin and takes time and invests in it, but it's, she has a lot of other things going on in her life, you know, that isn't just the only thing. So by finding a routine or ritual that she can actually practice in a small way every day to see change, I think is way more powerful than like sporadically using something that will like repair your hair. And it it actually doesn't long-term, you know? So you launched six weeks before the pandemic, which I mean, arguably a a brand like this is perfect for the pandemic, but I'm sure, you know, really threw a lot of things in your, in your way. Um, Tell me first why you think you launched with say the brush, the, the oil versus traditional hair care products, like a shampoo or conditioner. So you're totally right, by the way. I mean, obviously you dream of building a business and a team and you don't expect that there will be a global pandemic, but at the same time, you know, you print your collateral, your messaging, you do months before. So all of a sudden everyone was at home, not everybody, but a lot of people were at home and they found themselves with more time. So it was just this really, um, it was an amazing catalyst for people not rushing to their salon, not rushing to their stylist and trying to figure out how to care for their hair. And to the question of the assortment, you know, we're to me, there's so much stuff in the world. Like there's literally like skew count is not the issue in any category, but especially this one, whether you're at a beauty supply store with dozens and dozens of shelves that are aisles long, or even you're at a bigger retailer, like there's a lot and it's super overwhelming. So I really wanted to start with the few things that supported my hair after I got out of the shower because I felt like that was really where the magic was happening, especially with an air dry. So like I have wavy hair, obviously you can't see me right now if you're listening, but I have like type 2B wavy hair. So really figuring out how much hair my, how much moisture my hair needs um, and what I do after the shower is like key for my day-to-day life. So um, that is a perfect hair towel, like a hair towel that actually changes the way your hair air dries. It is a wide tooth comb. You should not be brushing your hair with a brush when it's wet. Even the brushes out there that are made for your hair when it's wet, it really does pull the fiber. Um, That's a great quality hair oil that's super hydrating, but doesn't weigh it down. Doesn't have cyclic silicones in it, but still absorbs, you know, 100% natural oil or coconut oil or something would make my hair look soaking wet. So really formulating a clean and effective formula that gave it your hair that like that vibe and and volume, but like made it shiny and gorgeous, uh, but still looked like you, you know, products that like made you, you, but a little bit better, uh, which is exactly what no makeup makeup is. It's not that you're not wearing makeup. It's just, you look like yourself or a better version of you. Um, but also like very practically, I originally didn't, I didn't think I would raise capital for this company after coming off a lot of kind of high growth at all cost startup consumer culture. I was like really, really adamant on not raising money. And I soon realized that that wasn't necessarily feasible in order to hire the caliber of talent I wanted or the the designers or place inventory orders, you know, the MOQs on some of this stuff. But I knew that I could develop tools on my own, right? Like I could find these partners. I could still afford like custom molding, things like that. It's very physical. I'm I'm not a chemist. We have incredible chemists um, that are part of our team who have worked on some of the most iconic formulas in the industry. But 
Um, for me, just starting again, like if you have an idea, <laughs> just start. And if that means like finding the right, you know, acetate partner and comb vendor and just getting samples made, I think it, it allows you to like keep the momentum and go forward. So that was a huge part of starting with tools. Also <laughs> coming from consumer, you recognize how important it is as a brand to create a visual literacy in the world, especially on social media. And the reality of this category is that it's mostly invisible. Like, I have no idea what you're using on your hair and vice versa. So, you know, having worked with brands like Away and Outdoor Voices and Harry's, like, you just learn that you need to create some type of iconic visual literacy. And I really think that, like, the brushes and combs in particular have kind of been that gateway entry point into the brand. Despite being D2C first and D2C only as of now, Diana, you know, the the brand, you know, had a very luxurious aesthetic, attainable, but luxurious. So when you're talking about visual literacy, was that intentional? Like, who are you kind of like aspiring to to be like? Or, you know, who are you trying to, you know, carve out a space for that maybe didn't have one before? Yes. So first and foremost, I create everything for myself and my community of women. Like, I will not put anything into the world I don't like or wouldn't use. So that's kind of the first barrier to entry is like, is this something that I would carry around in my life or use while I'm in my, my bathroom? Um, it was so clear to me. I always kind of joke that my personal aesthetic, it's evolved a little bit over the years, but I used to joke that my aesthetic is Star Wars meets Chanel. So it's like a little bit of high-low, a little bit of nerdy geek. I like love Lord of the Rings, my favorite movie. And I always joke that our like crown affair muse is Kira from Jim Henson's The Dark Crystal. Like she is just, (laughs) she's just my girl. I love that kind of stuff. So And it's really funny. A lot of our early customers, and we've talked to all of them on the phone or whatever, like they're art history majors or minors. Like they're kind of nerdy and geeky and cool and they're curious. So I knew that there was a woman who loved, right? Like I say my aesthetic Star Wars meets Chanel, but like I cannot afford Chanel every day. Like I'm not wearing Chanel right now. I'm wearing, you know, it's like a white t-shirt and jeans and I might have a bag and splurge on that, but it's not my like everyday look. Um, I'm also not wearing like, Star Wars graphic tees, you know, it's like there is this in between of like um, thoughtful, mindful luxury that is more accessible. And particularly in hair care, everything that I owned and would shop in the luxury space was entirely salon driven. So the greats, Christophe Robin, Orbe, it's beautiful, but it can all lean a little like luxury salon vibe. And it didn't really feel contemporary. A lot of the messaging in these beautiful luxury brands is very dated. Also like spending $50, $60 on a shampoo or conditioner is not accessible to everybody. On the other end of the spectrum, you obviously have the drugstore brands. So you have the Tresemme's, the Pantene's, you know, the Herbal Essence, all the 90s hair commercials you can think of, which is also a specific market. I do think as the customer gets more educated on ingredient quality, um, not just ingredients, but the quality piece, people will evolve and start to realize that sulfates or pegs or things like that have actually been damaging their hair. And then there was kind of this like middle sector of the market that was like not mass, but um, in brands that I love and respect, the Briogeos, the Waze, um, Amica, like that truthfully, I never felt connected to as, as a customer. I was always shopping myself at Violet Gray or Goop or more of these luxury places, um, aspirationally, not my everyday products, but those were the things that I would invest in. And I really wanted to create a brand um, that fit within that world. And when you held the tool or used the product, like it brought you joy, you know, and it felt like a part of who you were. 
Diana, I know that one of your early investors was Brad Murray, who was the co-founder of Tatcha, which seems to be like almost like your counterpoint in a way in the skincare space. You know, she really, Vicky and Brad really, you know, created a brand that was not SKU driven, not, you know, launch drop, you know, marketing blitz and really was about rituals. You know, did that make you feel like, wow, these people are finally getting it and this pe- there is a space for that within hair? Absolutely. I look to what Brad and Vicky did at Tatcha almost every day. Like, I think Tatcha, Drunk Elephant, Sunday Riley, like the democratization of skincare that has happened over the last decade. And Priya, it's so funny you bring that up because I really do feel like that's the space that Crown Affair fits in with hair care, right? Before before the Tatchas of the world, it was you were spending like 200 plus on La Mer, La Prairie. Like, you know, those names, like the metallic feeling of the luxury bottles and jars. And then, you know, you could also get like Clinique or Kiehl's, which might, there was this kind of intersection of that customer that I think clearly as all of these brands have done super well over the last decade, we we've seen. So, you know, and what Tatcha did early, like they started, I remember Brad telling me they started with the blotting papers and like, that was it. And they built a whole cult community and audience around that touch point in your day, you know? And I think that's like, that to me is so, what's so powerful about beauty is it really can give you a moment to slow down and take care of yourself. And I use those blotting papers still. I love, you know, these little moments. I I think of like combing your hair during the day or like giving yourself a a scalp massage. The same as doing like a beautiful face mist, you know? Tell me what it was like, obviously, launching a business during the pandemic, because I mean, we're still in it. And it doesn't seem like it's slowing down anytime soon. I mean, you're in Florida, you know what's going on down there and in the South. So tell me what what it's been like. I mean, in some ways, I imagine it's been even giving you more opportunity to connect with customers in unique ways. But it's obviously like probably slowed down a lot of supply chains, slowed down a lot of like launch, launch innovations, like what's been going on? Yes. So on one hand, I think this time has allowed us all to be super mindful about the choices that we make in terms of hiring, the culture that you're building. Like all of these things that I knew I wanted coming from these other companies, I've actually had the space to execute on that. You know, like you can talk to anyone on our team and like, I I know how proud and excited they are to be building this together. And I think part of that is just in our DNA and how we show up for work every day. Um, Also like, I do think that just being resilient is the only thing you can be like, you can plan, you could have a launch next week and like the world might actually fall apart. And that is way more important than anything that you're launching into the world. And it is important to hold space for that and be respectful. And, you know, I I remember even early in my startup days, my team members would be like, you never really like set up your desk. Like you don't like have things at your desk. You don't settle because I'm just like running. I'm just always been on the go with a laptop. Like you just make things happen. You just have to be resilient. And especially on the supply chain side, like we're very, we've been very fortunate in terms of our relationship with our vendors and partners. Again, we are a, we only have so many SKUs. We're a brand of hero SKUs. So our relationships are deep and meaningful and we work with very specific vendors, but you know, boat shipping, air shipping, delivery, all of this. I mean, people, I I talk about this all the time in the approach of like holistic sustainability. Like we work with incredible artisans in Italy and Switzerland who hand carve these, you know, brushes and combs and like Italy early pandemic. I'm like, okay, yes, 
it's great. I'd love to get this delivery, but like, are you okay? Is your family healthy? Like take the time you need, you know? And that to me, at the end of the day, like this time has made us live the ethos of what our brand is. Um, And it's also allowed us to get creative, you know, like I'm saying all the positive things for the most part, but so much of building a brand in the early days, it's like religion. It's like spreading a gospel. It's like getting on the ground and sitting with people and telling them about what you believe in. And while, you know, things like this, Zoom calls, podcasts, things are great. I think all of us know that it's not the exact same as being in person and connecting with people. So figuring out how to spread that surface area of special is what I call it, like that feeling you get uh, digitally in an incredibly crowded time. Like I think the days of just having an idea for a brand and then like putting it into the world are like, you really have to care. There's so much out there that like, if you as a founder don't deeply believe in what you're doing, both in your product and mission, like there's just so much noise, you know? So finding your people and, you know, something like Seedling for us, our mentorship program, which we launched shortly after COVID happened because still to this day, we get people asking to intern and work for us. And we found that it was just a really great way to authentically build community and provide guidance for for everybody and for women like us too, to, to give back time over an eight-week program once a week, talking to somebody who maybe is like, just graduating school, isn't totally sure where they are in their career. You know, I find that mentorship really does go both ways. Um, and some of the the women in our mentorship program, like maybe they've never bought anything ever, but they have such a deep connection with Crown Affair. And, you know, some of them maybe saved up to get the set. Maybe some of the, I mean, some of them are our best customers too. You know, they are spreading this mission and gospel for us. So that that I think wouldn't have happened in the same way. We would have been distracted and just like in the the flow of, of what life really was before. Talk to me about this word of mouth strategy because, you know, brands use the word community like almost to death, you know? And what I know about, you know, Crown Affair is that, you know, seedling and guides, you know, these are really driven, community-driven activations and, and plans. And, you know, I see the work that you do with other partners, whether it's, you know, Rose Inc. and Rosie Huntington Whiteley's line or Jenna Lyons and um, Love Scene, it really does seem like a bunch of friends getting together and talking. So how do you define community? And, you know, what do you think really gets these women going when it, when you're talking about talking with them and talking about hair with them? All of the time, a brand that might be in an investor's portfolio or someone reaches out and they're like, they want to talk to you about how you do community. And I'm like, there's no secret. You just talk to people. Like this isn't like this bigger, yes, you can have a thoughtful strategy. You can bucket things if you have a launch, sure. But like the only way to build authentic relationships is by taking time to build authentic relationships. So I know how I discover as a customer. I think that's a really important lens as a founder to be like, how do you, how are you shopping for other things? How are you finding out about products? And beauty as a category in particular is such a word of mouth driven universe. Like if my friend loves a product and recommends it to me or says like, this changed my skin or like you try it, you know, it it feels so much more real than just seeing like an ad on the side of whatever in the middle of your feed or even truthfully like a sponsored post. I think that there's so many more nuanced ways to work with influencers and pay them um, for content creation, for storytelling that isn't just like, 
you can tell, you know, it might work. You might get that initial spike. Obviously, companies that have bigger budgets to pay people a ton of money to post, um, you know, they're maybe seeing results. But for us, that's not like a day-to-day option. So I'd rather take the time to talk to people about their hair. And that's that's where this started. It was me talking to my girlfriends about hair. And it's such a huge part of your identity, I think, and, and well-being. And you know, even during the pandemic, as friends were losing hair, customers were reaching out about losing hair, like from stress or whatever it was, like being supportive on this journey, whether you have a product to offer them or not, I think is a huge part of community building. So um, it's been really meaningful to us. It's definitely harder to measure, but I do think that the long-term upside is so much higher. And, you know, we're not like a Gen Z TikTok brand today. You know, I mean, never say never. Maybe we'll be on TikTok every day, but we're, to me, we're just building something so much more powerful. And we also see that our older clients, like, you know, customers in their 60s, 70s, 80s, like they're the ones who are telling their daughters or their friends or their new daughter-in-laws saying like, you have to try this towel in the soil. It's, you know, and that to me, it's like really powerful. You know, you were obviously at companies who kind of perfected the marketing at all costs strategy, you know, you know, whether it was, you know, Warby Parker back in the day or away and, and obviously into the gloss and glossy, they, they created the feed, the ultimate feed. So when you think about marketing today, you know, I know very much a lot of it is word of mouth and a lot of it is not paid promotions, but how do you kind of juggle that? Like knowing what worked and worked so well for such a period of time and then now kind of doing the total opposite. So when it comes to paid media, which you're totally right, like those brands just figured it out and hit it out of the park. Part of that was timing. Like when Warby launched, like the internet was a different world. Like it was like people didn't even know what paid ads, you know, it was just a different time. So people were seeing something they're like, oh, Glass it, you know, it's like there wasn't anything else yelling from the rooftops. And now there is so much saturation. And of course, the iOS 14 updates have really impacted a lot of companies. You know, not that I was like in my corner. Well, first of all, you're like, you know, I've been at these companies. I've always been like the brand partnership kid there, you know, like even at a way it was like we did nine partnerships in my time there. Those things were all about halo effect. So if we partnered with, I don't know, someone, I'll do Madewell, for example, because we also partnered, we did a limited edition kit with Madewell for Crown Affair, which was one of our first partnerships. And, you know, you just think through the strategy to like acquire new customers. Like I know our girl's totally shopping at Madewell, you know, and like how she lives and moves through the world. So those alignments, you can see people come and the halo effect is like, they might buy that kit, but then they like get the towel or like other products that aren't a, pro- a part of it. For a way, it was like we made a pretty limited inventory of Madewell product. It wasn't like a huge buy, but like people might get the carry on in that limited color. And then we would sell like an exponential number of black mediums. You know, it's like that acquisition strategy that you can measure from a revenue perspective that I think is really powerful. When it comes to paid, and I'm definitely not the most knowledgeable person to speak to this, but what I'm seeing right now is just, it's so much harder to track what people are doing. And the irony is like, everyone's behavior is the same. It's just like the visibility into it is different. So I think as a founder, you have to just get really creative and find new ways. We fortunately 
are a brand who does not allocate a ton of our budget towards paid media in a traditional sense. So we've been able to continue to grow and not have an impact on our revenue month over month this year. I know that's definitely not the case for some other brands who are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on paid and really rely on that to convert. Um, Part of it, though, is that it's so not my expertise. And you know, I didn't launch this company five years ago. So we've just been really mindful. Maybe if we had this company five years ago, I would have put a lot more budget towards paid. But just given the landscape right now, I think there's way more thoughtful and clever ways to reach new customers. Uh, And one of them that I've been seeing, and we've been asked to do a few, and it actually did pretty well for us is like the concept of GWPs with other brands. So we actually did one earlier this year with Merit and the new clean beauty brand. And it sold out in 10 minutes. Like we provided them X number of units. That's a, that's over a hundred new customers. I think it was like we had 150 units within 10 minutes, you know, and like, then they discover us. I just, I like that approach to it. Um, but if you speak to somebody who's like an incredibly sophisticated paid marketer, they will be able to like speak to this in a, in a more, I don't know, considered way, probably. What about a program like Guides, you know, which I actually love the idea of, you know, women that you think are influencers or who may not be influencers, but you just love their hair and the way that you're partnering those women with other customers. Like, how did you even kind of come up with that? And how is that working? It's been so powerful. So right now, and I can explain Guides, basically, we have a community of women that love our product and they talk about our product. And whenever we have customers or people who aren't yet customers reach out to our care at Crown Affair email. They might say, I've heard about your product, but I'm not sure what to get. What should I buy? So we will pair them or connect them. And I'll do this too, by the way. I'm like secretly a guide, which is my favorite thing to do is talk to women about their hair and say, okay, cool. Tell me a little bit about your hair. My hair is also like yours. I use the brush number one. Here's how I actually use it. I use it this many days a week when my hair is dry. And it's not about selling product. It's about time spent with these women. Eventually they might convert. It's very similar to like, I don't want to say the Mary Kay model, but just like, you know, I don't love affiliate codes. You might again, talk to a paid marketer who's like, this is our affiliate code strategy. But like, I don't know about you. I'm not like texting my friends a code for things. Like it's one thing if it's a subscription-based product. I know people do send their codes for like Whoop, for example, um, which is probably why they're like thriving as a business. But when it comes to consumer goods, it's very rare. The people who do those codes often are trying to gamify the system or like get credit back. When I'm at brunch or just catching up with a friend, I'll tell them about, I don't know, new bedding I love or whatever. I'm not like sending them a code for it. So for us, it's like, how do we actually get you in touch with people who are a part of my community? Our customer, Stella, who's on our customer service team, she's the best. She is like, just if anyone's listening to this and you want to chat with Stella about hair, like we are here. And, you know, we do it in a way that's not about like scientific consultation or like assessing, you know, I think there's a lot of brands out there that do customization and you like fill out a quiz I'm very anti-quiz. I do not think that like 20 cosmopolitan style questions of like, of which you probably don't know how to answer three of the questions because you've never been taught what hair porosity is, you know? It's like, and then they have that data and it's like kind of irrelevant because the truth is, is your hair changes every like six to seven years. Like your hair follicles, they just, there's a cycle that they grow. Like it's, I don't know. I'd rather talk to a human when I feel like I want to talk to a human. And that might be challenging as we scale, but it's something that's so core to our DNA. And like, I'm the first person where if you shoot me a DM over Instagram or something, I'm either going to put you in touch with one of our guides, Stella from her team, or like, I'll just get on the phone with you, you know? 
Do you feel like you're going to be able to uh, devote that kind of attention to the brand as it gets bigger? You know, I know you have a lot of new news coming up. You have some new products coming up um, in the shampoo and conditioner space, as well as you recently got more funding. So how do you kind of balance, you know, the goals of growing a business, new product, new innovation, and then investor expectations, and then you being one person? I am a believer in figuring out how to scale when you need to scale, not scaling for the potential of scaling later. So getting those data points, having those conversations is going to inform how we do this in the long run. I think Seedling is a great example of this. Like we had all these people reaching out. Now we do it twice a year, you know, and we can aggregate people and have those conversations. And it's not like an ongoing day-to-day initiative. It's like a quarterly initiative or a twice a year initiative that has been really powerful. And I think Understanding how people are actually talking about their hair will allow us to create forms, different Google Sheets, whatever it is to like ask those questions or provide more context on the product page or make video content that feels really human. You know, it isn't like a stylist behind a chair being like, this is glamorous and this is how you use the product. So we will continue to grow and evolve as a brand. I mean, even today, you're right. I can't have conversations with every customer, but if there's something that they want to talk about, like I do have time to answer it, you know, or you know, even if it's a week later. Um, and our team is there and we'll continue to grow our team. In terms of like scaling in general and investor expectations, to me, it is so important that you align with your investors on your philosophy and your goals and the metrics that are meaningful to you. A metric that has been traditionally really important to consumer investors is top line revenue. But when you, as you talk about earlier, Priya, like the growth at all cost culture, it's like, great, if you're spending a million on paid ads and then you make a million and five in revenue, it's like, sure, you made a million and a half this month, but like at what cost? You know, it's like, it's really, and you're definitely spending more on wages, inventory, any overhead, you know, you're spending so much more. I mean, we're seeing this with a lot of the brands now, just in terms of the financials and it was really important to me to march towards profitability and be break-even sooner than later, which we've already achieved um, month over month. Obviously, as we grow and scale, that will change as we expand into more, have a more national presence. But that to me is so important. Another really important metric from an investor perspective is like retention and customer value and average order purchase, like value. AOV is key. Like we're hitting over a hundred in AOV right now, which is so much more meaningful than selling, you know, a $9 product. It's, it totally depends on your product market fit and what you're looking for. But I think the lifetime value of your customer, the average order value, how frequently they're coming back, repeat purchase, like those things are really powerful. And if you can continue to grow those organically because you have a great product and you're launching newness in a thoughtful way, um, that to me is like, it, t- it takes time. It's going to take us years. You know, we have goals and metrics that we're all aligned on and what this could look like, but you can't expect it to happen overnight. And often when you heat up really quickly, you can burn pretty quickly too. Absolutely. I mean, I think you look at these companies who, you know, were the original Warby Parkers of the world, you know, 11 years ago, and you still wonder, are they profitable or not? Or are they are they opening retail stores because they're kind of converting to the original retail model that they were disrupting. So I'm wondering for you, Diana, you know, there are elements that are getting more, a little bit more traditional, you know, obviously the shampoo and conditioner, which I'd love to hear more about, but what are you thinking also about stores? 
So shampoo and conditioner, I'm very excited about. When I told anyone or someone heard I had a hair care company, the first question was, do you have shampoo conditioner? I looked online, why don't you have shampoo conditioner? And the truth is, is I didn't have a shampoo and conditioner that I loved. And I didn't have enough conversations with people about what it was they were looking for in a shampoo conditioner. So, you know, to the point earlier of the products that we launched to start, it was a really thoughtful curation with an clear vision and intention. Over the last year and a half, we've had hundreds of conversations with our community, our friends, our moms, our dads, our siblings being like, what shampoo are you using? What conditioner are you using? Why do you like it? Do you even know what this is supposed to do? We talk to hairstylists and they say, you know, I sell this in our salon, but it's just because it, like we have a partnership with them or something like that. I had a whole new awakening of what a surfactant system is and what it should be and what the intention of like, I really do think that shampoo's original intention was good, but somewhere in like the 70s, 80s, and then the 90s shampoo commercial of like the lather, we've just been overstripping our hair with detergents, whether that's sulfates or pegs. And you lose the understanding of what your hair is capable of. And it feels really squeaky clean and it feels really great, but it's actually not great for your scalp and your strands. So We've been working on a product that we've tested with a number of people with different hair types over a very long period of time. I ran out of our lab sample and I went back to my like luxury salon and shampoo and like it just, my hair was not air drying the same. Like it was, you could feel it. You could feel the difference and you end up having to do more work on the back end or using hot tools or styling to feel the way that your hair really should feel. So Um, and conditioner as well. I mean, our renewal mask is one of our best sellers. Um, I had very clear vision on that when I launched, I had a few benchmarks that I really liked, but wanted to change something about them, whether it was making sure the ingredients were clean, uh, or just even like the smell, like that sounds really silly, but it is like a very important part of the hair ritual, especially if you have something on your head for 30 minutes or more. Um, And the conditioner is like a lightweight version of the renewal mask. It's just like you can use it daily. We've had Olympic swimmer, an Olympic swimmer test these products, like the shampoo, the conditioner. She is totally washing and taking care of her hair in a different way than me, someone who is very infrequently in a pool. So um, it's been cool to just like have people be excited about a product that you shouldn't normally be excited about. You know, shampoo and conditioner, and I would argue, you know, hair care as well, is one of those categories that has not been so loyal to the consumer, especially because shampoo and conditioner is wash and go. You know, you're in a hotel like I am right now, and you use whatever is in in the bathroom because you forgot what you brought. So I guess from your perspective, like how do you kind of translate this ritual aspect of crown of hair to these products that, you know, it's it's harder to do than say an amazing cream or an eye cream or, you know, a lip balm. I love that you just mentioned that because one of the early things I always said in like investor meetings too, was that I'm that person that brings my shampoo, conditioner and hair towel to the hotel because- My hair towel's here, but my, okay. I forgot my shampoo, conditioner. <laughs> Go yes. No, I, my entire vision is to make products. Like you would never go to a hotel and be like, I hope they have my cleanser and moisturizer and serum. Like you would just never do that. That's not happening, you know? So why would you do that with shampoo, conditioner? Especially like- a lot of the partnerships with hotels, it's like more scale. It's not quite the same. Like the ingredients are a little different than maybe what they're selling to you direct. So I just notice a difference when I don't use the product that my hair or skin loves. So to make products that people feel that strongly about, but you're right. I mean, 
it's incredible the insight you get from just talking to people about what they use. Half of the people are like, oh, I just use whatever's in my shower. Oh, I've been using this thing that my parents have bought at the drugstore, like whatever. So much of this isn't necessarily for the people who have done a ton of research and know what they like. It's it's just realizing, like, I don't even think people realize what your hair should feel like after a shampoo. So how do you spark those conversations? How do you get people to think about it? Like, you're probably going to shampoo later today or tomorrow and be like, what does this feel like in shower? What does it feel like after the shower? Like, to me, just elevating the entire conversation around the experience, whether you're using Crown Affair or not, is what I want to get at. Because we've had these conversations for decades now about you use a cleanser and it strips your face and makes it feel too tight. So then your skin overproduces oil. Like, there's a chance that your shampoo's been doing that too. Like, I talked to so many women who have, quote, oily, fine hair, and they have to shampoo every day. But it's like, let's actually take a beat to look at what's in your shampoo because maybe this detergent is causing your scalp to get not comfortable and tighter and actually overproduce oil. So if we find the right ingredients and products for it, again, it's trial and error. You have to take your time and like learn into what works for you. Do you think the skinification of hair, which is probably such an industry beauty term, is real or do you think it's imagined? Like, is it just us talking to each other about this? Well, it's so funny because people say that term to me all the time. They're like, oh, you guys are doing the skinification of hair. But I, it's not actually a phrase that comes out of my mouth often because I also think that like skincare, if you're using 45 products, like your barrier is going to get destroyed. You know, like there were the days of Clarisonic where you would just be like, my hair's so clean. And people are using like apple cider vinegar, scalp scrub, pH things. And like, it might work for some people, but you can also like really destroy your scalp barrier too. And I am just a firm believer in less is more. Like to this day, I still use Cetaphil and CeraVe, you know? And then like there's other product. Yeah, just like clean, good, effective, like gentle is really, really powerful. And then, you know, maybe there's one day you want to use an intense scalp scrub or it's, or there's going to be days that you want to blow your hair out. But for all those days in between, just using fewer, better quality products that are just like simple over time, I've seen a transformation in my hair and we've seen a transformation in the hair of our, of our customers. And it's just, it's a different message than what the industry has been telling you. It's not hashtag hair goals. It's not quote, good hair days. It's like caring for yourself and being kind to yourself in the process of wash day. So last question for you, Diana, tell me about stores. I know people are dying for you to be able to find you at a Sephora or an Ulta or wherever you might want to be. I know you're with Goop and there are certain places online that you have partnered with, but um, what do you think about that? Because the hair aisle is so confusing in stores. Beyond confusing. And like, I'll pop into stores all the time and just be a little undercover. And I'm like, tell me about this. What is this? I'm, I'm that person that's like lingering in the hair section of every store you see, um, trying to just be a quote customer. So right now we're at Violet Gray and Goop. And I think for anyone listening who has a brand, especially in the beauty space, like finding the right strategic retailers is very powerful. I think it was, you know, thinking of that as like a community member or some kind of way to be a megaphone for your brand, like their audiences care. I mean, I've been shopping Violet Gray for over 10 years. Like I believe in what Cassandra believes in. I believe in her team in terms of what they try and test products. Truthfully, one of the things that I'm most proud of from a formula perspective is that every single one of our formulas is on Violet Gray, which means it's been approved by the Violet Code. Like it's, it's real, you know, and I trust those people's recommendations. Same with 
Gwyneth and Goop and making sure that she genuinely loves the product and actually uses the towel and the oil and all of these things. So that's been really powerful. Um, that being said, they don't have as big of a retail footprint as say a Sephora or an Ulta. So, um, there will be newness and updates next year where you will be able to walk into any major city and shop crown affair and do it in a way that isn't just like selling to you by concern or making you feel fearful or less than, but is actually like a beautiful experience that will hopefully take you on your journey to discovering like what your hair is capable of. That's really exciting, Diana. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. This was so fun. Thank you so much for listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Tune in next week for another episode. And of course, that means if you haven't subscribed, please hit that button.